Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. For those that are politically engaged, that are horrified by the current policy decisions being made and enacted by the current administration, it sometimes seems as if the challenge is overwhelming. It begs the question, can any amount of the traditional forms of protest and organizing make a dent, or has technology, the speed of communications, and our ever-shortening attention span put us in a post-organizational environment? In a world in which facts are suspect, life is lived online with people that agree with us, and no minds are ever changed. Does protest even matter? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Gordon Whitman. Gordon Whitman is the Director of Policy for Faith and Action. He has been a community organizer, legal services lawyer, and strategist working with families to build strong and effective community organizations. He's taught history and theory of community organizing at the University of Pennsylvania and is a graduate of Harvard Law School. It is my pleasure to welcome Gordon Whitman here to talk about his book, Stand Up, How to Get Involved, Speak Out, and Win in a World on Fire. Gordon Whitman, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jeff, for having me. It's great to have you here. Does traditional community organizing, in the sense that I think people see it and understand it and that you've been involved with it, is it effective and does it have a place in the kind of environment that we're in today? Well, two things. One, community organizing has changed and modernized, so it's more racially conscious. It's more uh, focused on human development. It's more focused on creating community. It draws on some of our best understanding of how um, people make sense of the world and how they work together to create change. And two, yes, it does. And in fact, there's really nothing else that's propelled serious fundamental social change in this country and elsewhere, but face-to-face organizing that, uh, you know, takes time and takes work, but it's what propels justice forward. When was the last time that that kind of community organizing had a real social and political impact? Well, you can look at a lot of successes um, at a local state level. You can look at um, the, the um, you know, even recently we're talking a lot about DACA and, and DREAMers. That, um, that program that protects three-quarters of a million young immigrants from deportation um, and is it subject to you know huge political battle right now as we speak was a product of community organizing. Um, President Obama went into that policy kicking and screaming and did not want to initially um, put DACA in place. And you know people look back and, and think, well, that was um, you know the politicians must have done that. But that was grassroots community organizing by. Dreamers, immigrant youth who had the most on the line, who said this is possible when other people said it wasn't. How important is leadership, particularly charismatic leadership, to organizing today? Well, you know, leadership matters, but it, it, the key thing is that we find leadership in each one of us. So the biggest problem, you know, people don't need to know more about what's wrong about the world. We, we see that in our Facebook feed and we see that in the news, they really need to know not only that something's possible um, to be done about it, that change is possible, but also that I have a role to play. And the biggest obstacle we have is that people don't think that they have a role to play, but in fact, there's no way we're going to get to where we need to get to. We're going to, 
you know, right now translate the kind of anger and frustration with the Trump administration um, into real political power and influence and change until more people get involved in, in, in face-to-face community organization in politics, running for office, uh, being part of organizations that are holding elected officials accountable. And that really requires all of us, not just someone who's going to you know, lead the way. So it, it, it's not going to happen magically. It's going to happen because more people say, I'm going to be part of an organization. I'm going to join. I'm going to do work in my own community. And ideally, we're part of organizations that are connected together and can work at the local, state, and federal level and, um, and, and connect all the pieces of the puzzle together. Given how polarized people are, given how homogeneous communities are today, talk a little bit about how much more difficult that makes this process. Well, yeah, it's hard to find consensus, but, you know, we've, we've, we've had a history of conflict in this country over race, over um, economic equality. Those fights um, may look different today, but the struggle to eliminate racial discrimination from our society to create a more equitable economy, those are struggles that have involved a lot of conflict. So I don't think we should shy away from the reality that um, consensus doesn't get us um, everywhere we need to get to. So w- we have to fight for the things that matter to our, our, our families and our communities. And I think the hardest part at this in this moment is people believing that there's shortcuts, whether it's the internet or online organizing, all that has a, a, a role to play, signing petitions, um, posting things on Facebook, tweeting. But it's not, a, it's, it's not a, a replacement for organizations that bring people together, that allow them to develop an agenda, um, hold elected officials accountable, use their money, their bodies, their votes, to compel a government to do what it needs to do to be accountable to working people. How much is money a part of that, given the enormous amounts of money that are spent in the political process today? Yeah, you know, I, we need, an, we need a, a, an electoral system that allows working people and ordinary people to run for office. It doesn't um, tilt the playing field. But that's a big project to change how elections get financed. And, and the important thing is that there's a lot of change we can make right now. Um, in the book I talk about, and, and you're in California, I talk about the work that went into reforming the sentencing um, rules and criminal justice system in California um, that ultimately culminated in Prop 47. And that work really started in in local cities and counties with people saying, you know, we don't need a bigger jail. We don't need bigger, um, more jail beds. We need people who are sitting in jail to be in mental health uh, facilities, getting treatment or drug treatment. Um, People need work, not um, jobs, not jails. And, And that movement, which began very locally, um, led in many in many cases by people who who come out of the criminal justice system and were working to put their lives back together and finding obstacles. People like those involved in the Safe Return Project in Richmond, California. That local work laid the groundwork for a statewide initiative that um, 
reduced the number of people behind bars in the state, moved funding into education and drug treatment and violence prevention, and then allowed almost a million people to go back and have their records clean so that they could um, find work. That kind of change is possible, but it starts very locally. And, and people need to believe that it's possible and they need organizations that they can be involved in that, that are effectively um, organized. And a lot of what stand-up is about is how do we build organizations that are effective in the world and that treat their members in a way that's respectful and give them real agency and autonomy and operate democratically. That story with respect to Prop 47, doesn't that really get to the heart of how difficult this is? Because if it was that difficult, which it was, in California, it's hard to imagine anything working anywhere else. Yeah, though change is always, you know, important change takes a lot of work, a lot of organizing. If you look at the big breakthroughs in American society, the creation of the Social Security Act, um, the Medicare, Medicaid, civil rights movement, um, voting rights, those happen in very short bursts of political activity that, that followed from years and years, in some cases decades, of grassroots organizing. So we, we don't get there on our own time. We, we, we get there by looking at what's happening in our own community, our own city, our own town, our own state, hacking away at problems, and then building on what we've learned to create policies at the federal level. So that the things that we need to see happen in this country for families to thrive, wages that, that are sufficient for people to bring up their, their, their children, um, earn sick times so if you get sick, you don't have to go to work, uh, paid family leave, universal preschool, real investment in education, affordable higher education, all those things that have broad public support. We know we can make progress on them, but um, we're up against some very powerful opponents that have a lot of resources and, are, and frankly, are often better organized than we are. And the only way we balance that out is by getting better organized. But change is possible. And, you know, California is leading the way on so many critical issues for the country. And what happens in California often creates a template for other states. Traditionally, that certainly has been true, but one wonders if it's true anymore, if our our economic divide, our racial divide, our cultural divides are not so intense and so ingrained today that those traditional ideas still work. You, You talked about Social Security. You talked about some of the things historically where organizing public pressure, public support have worked. But those were times when, at the very least, we were able to have a common set of facts and common places where information came from, regardless of how we processed or felt about that information. That's no longer true. Yeah, we're, we're in deep trouble. There's no question that when you look at what's happening with climate change, what's happening with um, migration, the, the climate driving people to leave their homes, the racial anxiety that's getting created as a result of that, the hardening of racism as we get greater economic inequality, those cycles are fueling each other. Mm -hmm. And we are in deep, deep trouble, and this is beyond Donald Trump in the White House, that if we don't get better organized and we don't get more involved there's, we're not going to be able to interrupt those cycles, and they're feeding each other. So there's no question 
that our survival as communities, as a country, as a as a as a as a, a globe, is at stake in our capacity to organize ourselves. Now, there there are ways we can use technology to support that, and there's a lot of creative work to connect people together across place, and 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 there's some value to that. But there's still the ability for people to get together in rooms, build relationships, build enough trust to be able to act together, it's really the only thing we have that can counterbalance those crises. It's not going to happen quickly, but there's really no other answer that human beings have come up with but to um, build relationships with each other, build enough trust, and figure out what do we want, and then organize ourselves to get it. And, uh, you know, there's some very hopeful signs um, you're seeing many more people deciding to run for office, um, races like district attorneys and sheriffs that were often just the same incumbent gets reelected over and over. People, particularly out of Black Lives Matter and criminal justice reform advocates saying, no, those positions are critical to the well-being of our communities. We need to take those positions on. We need to have people run for them that are accountable to the community. So, I think there are some signs of hope. We just need a lot more of what's working. You talk a little bit about the success of the opposition in organizing. What, if anything, can be learned from that? Well, I think we need to understand that we're up against very powerful opponents, and we can't imagine that it's just a matter of, well, if the government or elected officials knew more information or more responsible or if the public was more educated that the right things would happen. The the problems we see, whether it's climate change or clearly the fossil fuel industry is profiting enormously from their ability to drive climate change and pollute the environment to private prison companies, um, to low-wage employers. We need to be able to name names and say these are the institutions that are benefiting from this problem that the vast majority of people in our community, our state, our country, believe needs a solution. So that's a starting place, is is really understanding that we're in a battle and that um, you can't be in a battle and pretend that you don't have an opponent. Um, And then we just need to get better organized and more disciplined. And, um, you know, that's not a simple solution. It's not a magic um, bullet, but good, well-organized organizations that don't waste people's time, that treat people as ends and not means, that ask enough of people that they feel like it's worth their time, um, that don't rely on too small a number of people. There's some basic organizing logic that, um, when applied, helps you build much stronger organizations. And what I tried to do in stand-up is really capture our best thinking today in, in, in sort of modern community organizing of how we build good organizations that are good in terms of creating change in the world, but also good for the people who are part of those organizations. Is the end game about electoral politics or is it about attitudes? So I think ultimately we have to govern our cities, our towns, our counties, and our states, and ultimately the country. And self-governance is a, you know old idea Um, but it's one that continues to be really critical. So we need people who are in office who understand that there's an organized group of citizens that put them in office, 
can take them out of office that they need to be accountable to. So self-governance in terms of political power right now is essential if we're going to get a hold on climate change and rising inequality and, um, and, and continue to move forward on, on eliminating racism and racial discrimination. So attitudes matter, but, um, but we need organizations that have the capacity to really exercise power. Um, the, the network that I'm part of, um, which is now called Faith in Action, formerly PICO National Network, was actually founded in Oakland um, and uh, Pico, California, in the state of California, has organizations um, in most of the major counties in the, in the state. There's 18 organizations, really, from San Diego up to True North, up um, in northern, northern California. And um, those organizations um, are making change at the local and county level every week. And um, we need more of that, but I think it's just important that people know that there are vehicles um, in any community to become more involved. And um, if you don't have an organization in your community, you can create one. We organize primarily through faith institutions, but we work with a lot of partners who work through schools, through youth organizations, neighborhood. So there's so many ways for people to get more involved. And it's, just, it's the, the idea that my voice matters is so critical to that. Talk a little bit about the balance between the effort devoted to local situations, as you're talking about, versus broader state and national objectives. So I think we underestimate the importance of local organizing and local politics. One, a lot of decisions get made locally that really shape the quality of our lives. And two, because of how our country's designed and our constitution, which makes change really difficult at the federal level, most of the history of major social change in this country started at the local level with, um, with organizing and um, models for change that then get um, done at the state level and ultimately help create the precedent for federal change. So I, I did a lot of work on children's health care um, leading up to the Obama um, uh, election, and, and that work inside of um, the organization I work for, PICO, began in Santa Clara County, really in probably about 2000, um, when that county decided, and organizations, grassroots organizations in that county, decided to fight to make sure that the tobacco settlement dollars that were coming to their county actually got spent on health care. And they proposed a program that would cover all children, regardless of income or immigration status, in Santa Clara County with health coverage. And that program became a model for children's health coverage programs all across the state of California and other states and really laid the groundwork for passing the federal children's health insurance expansion that President Obama signed like two weeks after he was elected. We're now, um, you know, back to fighting to protect that program. But that was that, that belief that we could cover all children and ultimately all people in the country started in places like Santa Clara County where people said, no, we can cover everyone in our city, in our town, in our county. Um, and that helped create the momentum for ultimately for things like the Affordable Care Act. So we can start local, and ultimately, if we're paying attention and keeping an eye onto the federal, make a difference.
How do you counter the cynicism that is so prevalent today? Yeah, you know, we're cynical because there's a lot to be cynical about, but I think it's really important to keep an eye on um, the history of the struggle. It's not going away. We are carrying a torch forward. Racial justice, economic justice, this is something that we will not, we won't solve it in our generation, but we have a responsibility to keep carrying that torch forward and to really understand that change is possible. We have a lot of historical examples of people organizing effectively, making change, um, and that it's not always what you get done in the community or in the world. It's also what you experience. And part of the point I'm trying to make in stand-up is that living a life of purpose in part is living a life connected to other people fighting for what's right. So this is a way to, to live a good life to, uh, and to make changes that matter to our communities. What are you seeing in terms of differences in attitude, approach, even success in different parts, different regions, different areas of the country? So, you know, we're seeing, you know, on the, on the coasts, a lot of innovation in California, New York, Massachusetts, um, moving forward on a lot of important issues that really begin to lay out, I think, what uh, a good family-friendly society looks like. So the, you know, universal preschool, um, access to um, health care for everyone, um, $15 minimum wage, those things are, you know, both important in places like California and New York and Massachusetts and, you know, primarily on the coast, not exclusively, um, uh, you know, begin to sort of paint a picture of what kind of society we're trying to create, the kind of policy change we're trying to make. Obviously, things are really tough in the South. Tremendous effort to disenfranchise um, people of color and, um, and young people and you try to, you know, prevent that demographic um, change that's ultimately going to transform the South. We're involved in a big effort in Florida to re-enfranchise, to win back the vote for about a million and a half people who are disenfranchised in the state. Almost one out of ten voters in Florida can't vote because they once were in um, the criminal justice system, and that will be on the ballot in, in um, this coming November. So a lot of, lot of fights to both um, re-enfranchise voters and to create voting rights and, and access to the ballot. Um, those aren't you know, new fights, but continue to be really central. And then the Midwest is such a, um, you know, a, a, a battleground right now and, and, and really, you know, a challenging place to build multiracial coalitions that really bring black, Latino, white, working people together around common interests and try to fight back against all these efforts to divide us based on race. And that's probably what makes, you know, people the most cynical because there's such a, a fierce effort taking place to, to pretend that, um, the people um, who share the same interests in good jobs and, and, and um, you know, healthy communities um, are somehow, you know, should be pitted against each other. So we, we need, uh, it, it, it's in all these regions, to be really clear that we're, we're fighting for economic justice but also to eliminate racism. And is there a sense sometimes with yourself and, and, and certainly with others that you talk to all the time to really just give up, to really collapse under the weight of all of that? 
Yeah, I mean, we, we all get frustrated. When we were fighting for children's health coverage at the federal level, um, we thought we, it, this was under George Bush, um, the second George Bush, and um, we thought, you know, kids' health care was the kind of issue you could get Republicans and Democrats to, to agree to. And um, at the very end of the Bush administration, um, Bush vetoed a bipartisan bill that would have expanded health coverage to 9 million um, kids or 4 million additional kids who didn't have health coverage. And it was, it was really disappointing. And, and a lot of people were like, well, this will never happen. And, you know, we tried to impact something that was happening at the federal level and we failed. Um, and, and that, that, that was a, a very difficult period. Um, and I think, you know, I, I organized primarily with, with faith institutions. And in that case, it was very helpful to have clergy um, and people of faith who, who said, you know, we don't get to decide the timing for this. And if it's right, we should keep fighting for it. And it was amazing to be in the White House um, for the, the signing ceremony for the Children's Health Insurance Program, really about two weeks into the Obama administration, and see that, you know, if you, if you don't, if, if you don't think you can control the timing and you're willing to keep the pressure up, eventually you'll get what you need and want for, for your community. Is there a belief that the pendulum will just naturally and over time swing in the opposite direction? I don't think it naturally swings. I, I think it, it can get worse and worse and worse and there is not necessarily a bottom to it. But I, I do think that sometimes what we see as... Um, overwhelming actually is a lot more jury-rigged and pathetic than, um, than it comes across. So, you know, the, the, the reaction to the progress of the civil rights movement on, on race, uh, on gender, on really creating a society that everyone was included in um, is what we're seeing right now. And, you know, it's, it's not necessarily going to go away quickly, but we need to understand that we're seeing a reaction to our success and, um, there are many more fractures in the conservative coalition than we imagine. And um, we're watching, you know, in different ways, the Trump administration um, just, you know, so disorganized um, and, and um, just pathetic in so many different ways that that's part of what creates hopefulness. Um, all the resistance and protests has taken place. The end of last year, we saw a number of elections really where the the energy against Trump um, began to translate into people losing their seats. And you saw an election in Alabama, Virginia. Um, you're seeing House members across California and across the country who are Republican incumbents um, deciding not to run for re-election. So there's some very hopeful signs that this resistance is translating into political power. But, you know, major point of stand-up is that that only really happens if we build durable organizations that can hold people accountable, whether Democrats, Republicans, or independents. We need to make sure that, that whoever gets elected knows that they're accountable to the community. We're just about out of time. But finally, what is the role, if any, of political parties in all of this? Well, political parties are um, entities that we have to, as as people, as citizens, hold accountable. So um, I, they're, they're a durable part of our, our institutions, but we can't assume because they take the label Democrat or Republican that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. And 
you know, you see this in California where you really have to work hard to distinguish a Democrat that's accountable to working people, to labor unions, to community organizations, and a Democrat that's primarily oriented towards large donors. So I think one of the challenges we have right now is that um, we need we need to make sure that we're influencing as community organizations, as labor unions, as um, as people who want to see um, change, that we're influencing who gets nominated, that we're we're influencing primaries, that we're making sure that the the candidates that are are, are running for office really are going to be accountable to and come out of. Um, the community and and that the there's a, a racial and economic um, and and gender balance in terms of who's getting elected because w- we need we need elected officials and and parties that represent the communities that um, make up their constituency and that's not the case right now. Gordon Whitman, his book is Stand Up: How to Get Involved, Speak Out, and Win in a World on Fire. Gordon, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks, Jeff. Thank really you. appreciated it. Thank you.